Labor Day. The United States of America recently celebrated Labor Day, which is different from Mother's Day because Mother's Day is about raising the children and labor is a whole other thing entirely that also needs to be acknowledged. Jeff, this is a terrible joke by me. Uh, Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. The reason I'm in the mood of terrible jokes is because of Tracy Majitz. And she is a Twitter follower and YouTube commenter. And she has started a thread on Twitter. And here are her economic jokes. Ready? Question. Why doesn't Jeff Snyder's kids ever have balloons at their birthday parties? No chance for inflation. <laughs> All right. Here's another one. Uh, here's another one from Mr. Tom Hartman. So there's a whole thread, ladies and gentlemen, that you can join in on. Question. Why is Jeff Snyder virtually impervious to Lyme disease? Because he's always up to date on tick data. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the best, uh, you know, inside baseball joke right. ever. <laughs> five, all five Nobody of Nobody else will get that, you know. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Mr. Hartman. And thank you very much, Miss Majitz. I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And forgive us for humoring everyone. Well, we're going to talk about the employment situation in the United States. We just celebrated Labor Day. We're going to be going over an article that Jeff posted at Alhambra Investments at their blog. And it was posted on the 3rd. And it's called Just in Time for Labor Day. It's not payrolls missing the mark by such a wide margin. And we're going to go back in time a little bit. Here, I've quoted your opening sentence. It was a highly curious change in the shape of the labor force. Beginning October 2015 and lasting until March 2016, for six months, Americans came flooding back into the labor market, or so they said. Yeah, if you remember, let's go back in time to, you know, 2014, 2015, the best jobs market in decades, if you recall the slogan around that time, you know, the establishment survey, the unemployment rate was falling rapidly. But the one thing that had been missing is the one thing that economists, including those at the central bank at the Federal Reserve, had been waiting for. For the first time in post-war history, following the 2008 recession, or actually beginning in the 2008 recession, the U.S. labor force actually shrank. Now, you know, in recessions, what had become typical is people lost their job, but they never left the labor force because why would they? They lost one job and simply started to look for another. So when the BLS came along and asked them, are you still looking for work? The obvious answer was, yes, of course. I've only lost the job I currently have or I used to have, and I'm looking for a new one. But 2008 was entirely different. And starting in October 2008, there's that month again. So I mean, like something must have, something important must have happened in October 2008. Starting in October 2008, for over a year, the, the size of the U.S. labor force actually declined, which meant that Former American workers told the BLS that they didn't even, yes, I've lost my job, but I'm also no longer even looking for work for reasons that I'm not going to tell you and reasons you're not going to ask me about. So as far as the BLS was concerned, people just left the labor force for reasons that we don't, that, that weren't specified. And what was supposed to have happened in any legitimate real recovery is those people would have come back into the labor force. That was what everybody was waiting for. That was the real recovery signal from the labor force itself when people said, 
you know, I gave up looking, I gave up looking for a job in the aftermath of the Great Recession because it was just so awful. There was no point in even bother look, you know, why even bother looking for a job because there aren't any available. But if things really did start to move into recovery, those people would say, oh, I can see that there's now good paying opportunities. I'm going to re-enter the labor force. And not only am I going to re-enter the labor force, all my neighbors who have been out of the labor force, they're going to go back into it too. And up until 2013, 2014, 2015, that didn't happen. In fact, between I think it was, you know, the two years before this October 2015 event, you know, going back to 2013, it had taken two years, two full years for two million people to come back into the for the labor force to grow by two million. And that's the other part that I haven't specified here is as all those people left left the labor force, there's millions left the labor force in 2008. There's obviously millions of new Americans who are coming of age that supposed to have entered the labor force as well, but never did. So you've got all those millions sidelined from the Great Recession, as well as those who never had a chance to begin with. You know, the joke about millennials in their parents' basements. Well, yeah, that's where that came from, because there really was not the marginal economic opportunity for them. And if there had been in an actual recovery, we would have seen them enter the labor force, we would have seen the other group enter the labor force. We would have seen the labor force begin to rise back to where it should have been had, there, had the Great Recession actually been a recession. In October 2008, it made sense, you know, you could understand why the labor force went down because, even though it had never happened, as you pointed, since World War II, was because that's when Hollywood released a monetary horror movie, Euro Dollar Ween, Don't Fall Asleep or Go Into Repo. And then, in October 2015, you would think the authorities said, yeah, the labor force is increasing because it's time. It's been seven years, but the five people or four people that we have left watching this show know that doesn't make sense because in October 2015, Hollywood released number three. It wasn't the sequel. It was the triple sequel. It was Euro Dollar Ween 3. He's back again. We were in the middle of a, another Euro Dollar storm and you would think, wait a minute, in the middle of a Euro Dollar storm, you've got the labor force growing by two million people entering in those six months between October and March. Earlier you said it took two years, now it only took two, six months for that same amount of people, right during Euro Dollar Wing 3. Why? Yeah, that's uh, the last time that you would expect this to happen because yes. as you pointed out, it was it was bad economically, economically speaking, across the rest of the world. But even inside the United States, there was a marked slowdown in the labor market, as sold by the Establishment Survey payroll report. So, I mean, for and that, you know, in the U.S. experienced a very close, got very close to recession during that exact six month period. Jeff, so you remember? I'm sorry. You remember last week we went over the NBC News survey. The right. people were saying the economy is worse for three surveys in a row and that's very unusual and it happened right then so yes it was yeah, in but, asia so but we last knew six it. months you would pick out that's for right. this flood back i mean this is the exact opposite of what you would expect for i remember us, thinking at but, the time yeah, yeah you know what the hell is going on here because the economy is falling off a cliff or nearly falling off a cliff in the united states it is definitely falling off a cliff everywhere else and suddenly the american labor force is starting to rise and you know, doing what you're supposed to do, you say, well, maybe that is, maybe this really is what Janet Yellen's, you know, her her fondest and most fervent dream is coming true, that the economy really is starting to pick up. Or let's look around for maybe some possible other excuses or so other explanations for 
what really was a, a very contradictory or a very weird sort of uh, uh, occurrence. It was weird if you were following the data, not the media narrative from the establishment. And Jeff, tell us then, what is SNAP? And what does SNAP have to do with that time period? It's SNAP is the Supplemental Nutrition, I don't know what the A is. Assistance program? program. <laughs> Assistance program, something like that. We had what used to be called food stamps, essentially. If you lost your job or you, you qualified on an income basis, the government would send food stamps or you know, now you get a, a sort of, a, I think, an electronic debit card type thing, which you can use to, to help buy food so that you don't, you don't starve to death from being unemployed, which is a good thing. And it's a government safety net assistance program that is, it is essentially, it was extremely uh, useful and necessary, especially during this period in question following the Great Recession, because the economy never got into recovery. However, because it had this lack of recovery in the millions, I think it was at, you know, almost 30 million at one point, of Americans who were using the SNAP program had lasted into 2014 and then 2015, the government kind of said, hey, maybe this is long enough. This is supposed to be temporary assistant, not a permanent thing. And in late 2015, they did, the government decided, well, we're gonna, start re, uh, we're gonna start reimposing work requirements because in the aftermath of the Great Recession, what they said was, we don't care. You know, everybody, these people need assistance. We're gonna remove some of the bureaucratic red tape and requirements just allow people to become eligible for this kind of assistance. What they said was, look, by 2015, you know, that's six and seven years later, maybe we should start verifying that these people are actually looking for work because, you know, Janet Yellen says things are really good out there, so maybe they must be. And what happened was that SNAP started to reimpose work requirements, left, you know, the states who had, had uh, granted waivers started to, to remove those waivers and reimpose work requirements across much of the much of the economy and that just so happened to begin in that three-month window October November and December 2015 and if you were one of the states that that removed the waiver is say as late as 20 as December 2015 that meant that you were reimposing these work requirements all the way until March 2016 so from October 2015 until March 2016 that was when these work requirements started to show up across multi, uh, the vast majority of the US states if I understand correctly, so you need to be working in order to continue getting the uh, the assistance, is that right? You need to be either working or you need to be looking for work. So, so you need to be in the labor force. You need to be telling the government that I am doing something. I, you know, maybe I can't find a job because things aren't great or maybe I'm working, I'm not making a lot of money. But either way, before then, in the aftermath of the Great Recession and forward, it had been, we don't care if you're working, looking for work or not, because we know you probably need assistance. The economy's awful. But this was supposed to be recovery. You know, the best jobs market in decades, 2014. So now we're going to go back to the way it used to be, which is you got to at least show me that you're at least trying to look for work. Now, in, in the United States, we don't have a government that's one all-encompassing, powerful government. There are many governments, many agencies within the government, and so you believe and explain in this article that the people were getting a call from or being told from one government agency, you better be at work. And they were telling them, yeah, I'm looking for work. And then they would get a call from a completely separate entity that almost certainly had no connection and was not cross, what is the word, cross-referencing, hey, are all exactly. these people, but you're saying, it's two government agencies. One is telling me I have to be at work 
Here's another one, a survey calling me, are you at work? What am I gonna answer? And you say, Jeff, you, you didn't take it lightly, but you were saying fraud. Yeah, I'm thinking that what happened was that people started to say they were looking for work. They would tell the local state agency that administered the SNAP program that, okay, now I have to, I have to, there's a work requirement involved that's being reimposed. Yes, of course I'm looking for work. Here's, here's a list of a couple of companies that I called or whatever you need to do to verify that you're looking for work. And then along comes the BLS, which tracks the labor market data, the, you know, the establishment survey and the household survey, which is where this labor force data comes from. I have to imagine that some of these people were thinking, well, I just kind of fibbed to the state agency, and this is a federal government agency, I probably should tell them the same thing. Even though I'm not really looking for work because there isn't any work available, I still want my SNAP. I'm going to tell the one government that, yes, keep the, keep the, keep the assistance coming. I'm going to say the same thing to the other government because how the hell do I know? Maybe they talk to each other. I better tell them the same story. And I really think that's what happened because it's just too damn coincidental that the labor force rose during that specific six-month period in only that specific six-month period. It's just, it makes, it's too much of a random coincidence otherwise. You reached out to a government bureaucrat, the Bureau, Bureau of Labor Statistics, and you presented your thesis to them, and they responded and they said, that's very interesting. We would love for you to come actually consult with us. Maybe we'll put you in touch with the Federal Reserve and other economic agencies. We really like the cut of your jib. Yeah, no, they, they gave me the most anodyne bureaucratic response you could imagine. And one that at the end said, kind of said, you know, we think you're doing this for partisan purposes to, to hurt whatever policy that's being reimposed. And we don't kind of, we, we don't really like your question to begin with. They just completely dismissed it. I basically asked the BLS, look, can you explain the six month bump? Is, is there something in your data that has essentially a better explanation for what's going on than what I'm proposing here? And they didn't even answer the question because you know that's kind of what the government does. So that we're left with, what else could it be? Was it actual recovery? I mean, was this finally the U.S. recovery starting to show up in 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 reality, not just in Fed models and in uh, you know the, the uh, fever dreams of the financial media looking for inflation and validating QE and all that, or was this just a six-month anomaly? It just so happened to coincide perfectly with the reimposition of work requirements in the SNAP program. I think the answer to me seems fairly evident because what followed from that six month period was actually even worse conditions in the labor market as the labor market slowed continuously into 2017 as a result of that near, res near recession in the US, which as you pointed out, Emil, was going on at exactly the same time this flood of people into the, or at least people saying to the BLS, telling the BLS they're rejoining the labor force. About a month ago on CNBC, the, let's see, Greg Iacurci wrote, there's an unemployment cliff coming. More than a seven and a half million may fall off. Federal unemployment programs that have paid jobless benefits since March, 2020 are poised to end September 6th. And it doesn't appear Congress will extend them again. By one estimate, it may affect up to seven and a half million people. Let's see, millions of jobless Americans are poised to lose COVID-era income support in about a month's time. This impending benefits cliff appears different from others that loomed in this past year when Congress was able to keep aid flowing after 11th hour 
legislative deals. And so, Jeff, are we thinking that maybe what's happening in this past week may affect the labor force numbers in future readings in a positive way superficially, but maybe underneath we're still not in a good economic position? I don't think the unemployment claims cliff will make much difference in the labor force it, because there's, you know, there's no reason for Americans to lie or fib or, you know, make up stories saying that, oh, if suddenly I've rejoined the labor force for the benefits that are expiring. No. So I don't think there's going to be any of the, there's nothing going to, nothing on the horizon that's going to make it look like that six month period where we can, we can fool ourselves into believing that something legitimate is happening as far as labor market, or actual labor market recovery. Instead, I think what we're going to continue, what we're going to see is that it's kind of the same thing that we've seen even in just recent months where the labor force has come back a little tiny bit over the last few months, but nothing like what you would imagine if the economy is as robust as some of the other labor market data suggests. And so, you know, in addition to that, you have this, this benefits cliff that's going to really take a lot of, of uh, certainly Uncle Sam's you know, uh, introduction of money into the economy, that's going to disappear. So that's going to be a non-inflationary or anti-inflationary problem moving forward. And the reason why it's a, a much bigger problem is because these benefits are timed to expire during a period of actual recovery where you think, well, by then, you know, it's a year and a half later, by then, people aren't going to need unemployment, generous unemployment benefits because the economy is going to be so much better. But what if the economy isn't so much better? And that's really what we're getting at here, is the labor force numbers are essentially Americans telling you at the margins, maybe the economy isn't as good as you people seem to think it is, or you're being told it is, because we're not even bothering to look for work, and we're telling the BLS that we're not looking for work because there's really no purpose. I know there's all sorts of other explanations for this, including the extra additional benefits that the government has been paying. You know, schools haven't been completely in session, which I don't buy that one because schools have been completely in session uh, toward the end of last year. And any number of reasons that our people are offering for why Americans are, don't seem to want to be joining the labor force again like they should, when in fact we've seen this pattern of behavior before in the pre-COVID economy, which was a macro factor of the economy never being as good as it has always been claimed to be or as good as the unemployment rate seems to make it. We talked about the unemployment rate a week ago, and I think it was at 5.2%, which is fantastic considering, but we're always concerned about the labor force participation rate. And in this article, you give us some good numbers. Now I've pulled up the chart here where you've got some notes just to jog your memory. Can you walk us through these huge numbers regarding both the change in the labor force and the addition of new workers that haven't yeah. been able to find a job. How far behind are we? That's really the other part of this too. And that's really, you know, going back to what I said, the joke about the millennials and, and now Generation Z that's stuck in their parents' basement is that the economic growth has been so poor and so, so lacking that the labor market has never been, been able to recover. So we don't have enough jobs for people who lost jobs before 2008, that had them before 2008, let alone have create enough jobs to absorb new entrants. And you know, there's been all sorts of explanations put forward about why that doesn't matter or that this is some structural problem that you and me are to blame for the lack of the economy when you can see quite clearly the problem dates back to October of 2008 
which has a specific purpose and a specific specific uh, genesis to it. Um, and it just how happens to point the finger at the Federal Reserve, which is where most economists live and work, and therefore they have a vested interest in doing everything in their power to say, oh, it can't have been anything about 2008 or October 2008, because that would mean we screwed up so big we broke the economy. Instead, they want to say, you and I are the problem. We're too lazy. We won't go back to school. We, you know, we're, we're too... We're too uh, um, we're too used to the $300 or $600 unemployment benefits. But what we've seen over the last year is essentially, if you want to go back to the chart, Emil, um, that when, when the COVID recession hit, when the lockdowns were imposed, there was a huge spike in those who claimed to not be in the labor force. And that's the, the other side of that is the labor force actually shrank, which didn't make sense at the time. And I think we talked about that in one of our earliest podcast episodes, which was a really ominous sign because, again, in in actual recessions throughout uh, post-war economic history, people didn't leave the labor force. You only leave the labor force if you're if you think I'm not going to get a job anytime soon. So if you think this was more of a permanent change in economic condition, then you would leave the labor force. If you think it was an an actual recession where it was just a temporary deviation, you know, a temporary contraction, no matter how deep, a temporary contraction, you wouldn't actually leave the labor force. You lost your job, yes but you're still gonna look for work at some point in, in the near future. And that's not what happened in 2020. In fact, millions, I think I forget the, at the top, it was almost like seven million, five or six or seven million uh, up until April or May of 2020, just disappeared from the labor force entirely. And then only a couple million of those actually came back into it, even though that was over a year, uh, a year ago. So after, you know, we're talking about a year and a half later the labor force is still down by almost 3 million people compared to where it was in February 2020. And of course, that doesn't take into account where the labor force should have been up until 2020 had we actually been in a recovery. And then, you know, that doesn't include also, you know, a couple million more people who should have entered the labor force population expansion. You know, it was almost 2 million people since since February 2020 who haven't joined the labor force either because there's no jobs for them available. And what they're saying is they're not even looking for jobs either because there's no point. So we have, you know, it's not just an employment crisis. You have a labor crisis where people don't even look for work. But why are they not looking for work? And that's really kind of the issue here. I think one of the broadest possible measures is the civilian employment population ratio, which you include in this essay and it's right here and i think that's the most damning one what is that jeff is that basically everyone who is working age versus the labor force compared it's, and you go ahead the civil yeah the, uh, the civilian employment population ratio is actually how is it's everybody in the civilian non-institutional population which is everybody who's available of age to work that's mm -hmm. the total potential pool for laborers how many how what what percentage of that population of that entire pool of potential labor is actually employed in which so it doesn't count the labor force at all it's just how many people are actually employed in the civilian non-institutional population what you can see is those the massive difference if you go by just the unemployment rate which is derived from the labor force and if the labor force is too small the unemployment rate is going to fall much quicker what you see is that the unemployment rate makes it seem like we're again almost back to normal you know almost back to where we would have been in you know the, in the middle 2000s or you know 2015 or uh, you know even in the in the late 1990s during the dot com boom, but if you look at the uh, 
the uh, civilian employment population ratio, very, very different story, not just in the uh, not just in 2021, but also in the post 2008 period as well, where we see, look, job growth, employment growth, all of these things, it's not keeping up with it's not only not keeping up with new population and even you know population growth has slowed down too, but we're not we're not recreating the jobs that get lost during these contractions either, and that's really what the labor force numbers are telling us. Americans, uh, you know, down on the ground, down in the, down in the trenches, are saying we're not even looking for work because we don't believe there's any work available. And it's something we talked about before again with an NBC survey. Do American workers have a better sense of economy than economists and central bankers do? And I think the answer is yes. When we look at these labor force numbers and the lack of participation, it's a very good, clear sign of how things actually are at the margins of the economy, which is, you know, the too big of a margins of, of, of these people are, are not experiencing anything like a healthy system. That's how you summarize the article saying, quote, hidden slack isn't actually hidden. It is conveniently dismissed as a labor shortage, which sounds so much better, so much more recovery and inflationist, convenient for commentary, disastrous for the economy, and an ongoing outrageous tragedy for Americans. These poor souls really do count. It's econ economics which can't. Jeff, we're going to talk about the labor shortage in part two of this show. Is there any summary concluding thoughts you wanted to share with the audience on this article? Just that, again, the labor statistics may not be representative of what's actually happening, or at least the, the main headline statistics like the payroll, survey, payroll report or the unemployment rate. And this is not a recent phenomenon, nor is it something that we, you know, there's no conspiracy here. This is not something that we're, you know, economists or the government is trying to hide a problem. It's simply that these measures never, when they were, when they were uh, developed and, and put in place, there was never the situation that we've been in since 2008. They, you know, they never envisioned that type of situation, which these numbers simply just cannot accurately uh, cannot accurately count and keep track of because they were never designed for this sort of economy. Because it was, you know, we talked about this during you know permanent shock unit root uh, episode, where economists thought that 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 sort of you know 60-year window between the end of World War II, or actually really between the great the end of the great great uh, great depression. And the Great Recession, they believe that, that these mild temporary recessions had become the norm. In fact, not just the norm, but the only way for, uh, the business cycle would operate. And so the statistics that have been developed during that period were developed for those types of conditions and were never really meant to describe the situation we find ourselves in now, which is why there's so much trouble. And it's really it's, it's kind of broken down into those two different interpretations. Either you look at the labor force as sort of at face value and say, look, Americans are not looking for jobs because they don't believe they exist. Or you look at it from the perspective of economists and, and the media and, and uh, everybody else, which says, well, no, these Americans are just too lazy at the margin. They won't go back to school. They're, they're too drug addicted or whatever comes or whatever excuses put forward. And that the problem is the labor force, not the economy. When you know we have all sorts of uh, of data and uh, and uh, market market indications that suggest, yeah, the economy really is as bad as the labor force says. So it's not just that Americans are, are avoiding the labor force; that's just another one of those another one of these these really visible symptoms that you can you can see as part of this coherent, consistent whole that 
ever since 2008, the economy has failed to recover and the labor market has failed to recover most, which is a symptom that John Maynard Keynes warned us about over a hundred years ago when he said, look, there are two monetary evils in the world. One is inflation, one is deflation. And deflation is by far the worst one because number one, it impacts the labor market most and most directly. And number two, it's so insidious, you don't realize most of the time when it's actually happening. You just sort of see that there is no labor market growth and we're left to try to figure out why that is. And if you don't have that, this kind of a background where you can understand and interpret what's going on, you might think that it is lazy Americans. You might think that we need to point the finger at everybody else rather than back squarely where it needs to be pointed at, which is the monetary system and those claiming to govern it. So there are these two interpretation of the employment situation in the United States. The one you just made, which sounds eminently reasonable, and the one that we hear about, which sounds reasonable, at least at the superficial level. What we should be getting is a discussion of the merits of both in the business press and financial media. We don't. We're going to talk about next, in part two, what we do hear about, which is the labor shortage. The labor shortage. You certainly could not have picked up your financial newspaper or turned on to your favorite business channel without hearing about it. It's everywhere, including in a publication put out by the Federal Reserve this week on September 8th. They released the Beige Book. Now, this is not, and this has to be distinguished from the off-white, the ivory and eggshell books, which are totally different. This is the Beige Book. And Jeff, it's a collection of anecdotes. Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. It's a collection of anecdotes that was implemented in the very early 1970s by Arthur Burns. And we're going to talk about what we found in there. You talk about it in your blog post at Alhambra Investments, posted on the 8th of September, the day the Beige Book was released turning the labor shortage up to 11. And Jeff, I'm going to read about what was happening in Boston from a beige book here. Tight labor markets are seen for at least some positions in each of retail, manufacturing, software, IT services, and a severe labor shortage is said to be restraining hiring and expansion in the Massachusetts restaurant industry. It wasn't just the New England Patriots hometown area. No, let me read something from Texas again from a beige book. A shortage of low wage workers has led to a scattered wage pressures in a few industries. One contact attributed the labor shortage to a recent influx of telemarketing firms. Highly skilled construction workers continue to be in short supply, leading to wage pressures. Jeff, you set me up. I've set the audience up. As I was going through this, I was making notes and I was saying, yeah, there's always a labor shortage of highly skilled construction workers. There should be a shortage of engineers, production workers, computer programmers, and computer scientists. So I was like thinking, this is normal. That was on page one. What happens on page two? Well, don't forget, I think that you know, from the one Boston Beige book, the, the person they quoted said it was the worst they had seen in 35 years of the restaurant industry in Boston, which sounds like this is this must have been ripped from the the headlines of the Wall Street Journal just today or yesterday or the day before. Right. Because all we've heard, you know, as we talked about in the previous segment, that the labor market must be tight, even though Americans are not rejoining the labor force. <laughs> 
they're not rejoining the labor force because they're lazy, they like $300 extra in unemployment benefits, blah, 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 whatever it is. And so it sounds like, you know, this is today. This is a restaurateurs are, are, are complaining bitterly about the inability to find labor and source labor. And it's holding them back. You know, the economy would be so much better if you stupid Americans would get off the couch and, and actually go back to work. Except no. The, the, the beige book, uh, the, the one about the quotes about Boston in the first district were actually taken from the beige book from, uh, what was it, uh, 2000, July, July 2016. July of 2016. So they were complaining about a labor shortage in 2016, which as we just talked about, which, which was kind of consistent with, with what the labor force dynamics actually were at that time, which were Americans saying, Maybe you have a job, but it doesn't pay anywhere near what I need it to pay for me to come work free. And then the other one from Texas, that was actually October of 1996. Yes. And the point being is that, look, anytime, anywhere, any kind of economy, you're going to be able to find a quote unquote labor shortage. You'll find references to it. You'll find business people who lament the ability, they, you know, their inability to find workers that they want at the price they're willing to pay. Oh, any time throughout history, you, you can find a labor. There are structural labor problems where, you know, look, in one industry is declining and another industry is ascending. It takes time to train workers from the to take, uh, you know, to take workers from the descending industry, retrain them and have them find better days in the, in the uh, industry that's ascending. There's all sorts of things that combine in, underneath in these dynamic economies where you can find anecdotes and even some some pockets of data that say, yes, labor shortage, it's happening. As you pointed out, Emil, construction firms have been complaining about skilled labor for as long as I've been an adult. I remember in the 90s, they were com they were complaining about that. So oh. labor shortage on these micro scales isn't really hard to find, nor is it anything abnormal or atypical. All skilled labor is in short supply, highly specialized, highly skilled, cons any worker that's highly skilled is in short supply at all times, I would think. But Jeff, you point out that's a function of the world we live in. Super. However, you also make the point that there's a difference in the post-2008 experience. Now the labor shortage is a slogan which merely repeats with extra emphasis through the years. It tries to transform these micro-scale anecdotes and genuine incidences into some massive macro-phenomenon essentially to let the status quo, such as the Fed's ineffective QE policies, off the hook. That's the difference. That's really what it, yeah, we've taken these things, these labor shortages, these micro-scale labor shortages that happen off time, or, or always through time and now we hype them up we being mostly the financial media but also you know look the beige book the beige book i think you know uh, it was before covid i used to track how many times the beige book would mention labor shortage mm -hmm. you could see it matched with uh federal reserve and, and mainstream rhetoric about inflation and economic growth and recovery potential even though there was no data for it look i get you yeah, micro scale labor shortages existed and what's happened especially if you remember 2018 it was the last time this really got out of control in the same way was it got hyped up these anecdotes and these individual stories and these micro scale labor shortages were brought forward as if they were representative 
of the entire economic system. Look, it was, yes, we can't find restaurant workers in Boston. That must therefore represent the entire condition throughout the entire United States economy because Jay Powell says so, right? That's really what it is. Jay Powell says inflation, the labor market's tight. He said inflation's gonna rise. So we, it doesn't seem to be happening in markets. It doesn't seem to be happening in the real economy. So let's go looking for individual stories that at least fit that kind of a narrative. And that's gone into hyperdrive over the last, you know, certainly in 2021, as the labor, you know, as we just referenced in the previous segment, the labor force itself has been stagnant for over a year. And so there has to be all sorts of other excuses for why that is. And one of the excuses is that, oh, the labor market just is tight. The labor market is the way it is because this is as good as it gets. I remember those graphs they used to do, and I believe it was 2018, Jeff, when you were doing them. I think it would be great to bring them back because you did them because it was happening again. We were talking about a labor shortage. Why? Because the economy seemed to be struggling, right? It shouldn't have been. It was globally synchronized growth. So we saw these anecdotal, anecdotal, you know, <laughs> examples being emphasized because this beige book is curated by the people at each of the districts to emphasize a particular point of view. And that would be a great graph to bring back just to see if again, because I remember it was rising and falling with the economy, it was perfectly timed. Okay, so that was qualitative. Let's do quantitative now to talk about the well, labor you know, there was all, Let's forget too, and part of this too is that, you know, a big part of the, especially the mainstream uh, media stories for like from the Wall Street Journal, for example, I remember, you know, it was almost daily, there would be a, a, a story in the journal as there is, you know, this year about how companies would have to get creative to find mm. workers because they were such, they were in such short supply, you know, the perks in the break room, you know, all sorts of food brought in and things mm. like that. I love it. And, it, you know, they're so, they were so amusing at the time, if it wasn't so, you know, such a, a serious issue, they were so amusing and comical because companies don't have to get creative. If you really want workers, there's a really simple answer to all of this, which means you just, you pay them what they want to be paid and they will show up at your doorstep. I mean, it's like magic, right? Who would have thought if you give workers the amount of money they want to get paid to work, they will actually come into your company. So there's no need to, to, to throw out, you know, a couple extra vacation days or perks or whatever it is. Just pay them. It's really that simple. If companies would pay the market clearing wage, given the fact that there are millions upon millions upon millions of Americans sitting on the sidelines, telling the government they're sitting on the sidelines, not looking for work, give them the pay that they want and they will come off the sidelines and work for you. So what we're really talking about isn't really a labor shortage. It's a shortage of economic recovery because it, it, what's really causing this problem is the fact that companies are telling you they cannot pay the market clearing wage. And that's really the issue at work here. If companies can't pay what labor wants, that's a whole different ballgame. Right, they can't generate the revenue off of that worker. Therefore, it's too much risk to or, hire yeah, the worker at or they're not confident enough about the future to take on new labor because look it's bringing in new workers is a commitment it's a hassle mm -hmm. it's it's a friction it's all these you know all these micro scale economic problems where you have to be reasonably confident that you know the work that you thought that you, you need these people to do is going to continue in the future otherwise they can become a real harm to your balance sheet and to your income statement and to your survival because mm -hmm. if you have too many workers that's a really bad place to be if the if your worst fears about the economy really do materialize so 
that's part of this too. You're not going to pay workers if you don't if you aren't really really sure that the work you think they we might want them to do is going to be around for as long as you want it to be. And you, you know, part of the problem too is it's it's been so long since we've been in an actual legitimate economic boom. We forget what it looks like. And for business owners, you go back to the 1990s, for example. You know, these kinds of things. You know, yes, there were there's these, these anecdotes about labor shortages and skilled workers and whatnot. But you know, when business is actually booming, the last thing you're going to be worried about is, oh, maybe I don't want to pay my worker this this extra fifty cents an hour that'll get them to come in. Or you know, you're not going to be over managing your cost structure. You're going to be more concerned about, do I really have enough resources? Because the opportunities are so good and they're going to continue to be so good. If if I need to pay a little more for for my workers to get more workers, and I'm going to pay it and be happy about doing it. So it's really about the the wage rate and the pay rate, and the 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 inability of companies to to really be confident about what they're actually seeing in the real economy. And again, I I bring it up often. It's not like we're going through our first recession. We talk about it all the time. This is the fourth dollar shortage that's taken place across the world four times now. So why should they commit themselves now? No, they need to see a lot more, I don't know, a new social contract, as I've been talking about before. Let's go qualitative. Let's go quantitative. Let's go quantitative and talk about what was released on the 7th of September, a Tuesday, from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the Jobs Opening and Labor Survey. And in February of 2021, it was quite high already then. It was around the 2018 peak. Since February, it has gone, as you say, nuclear. Nuclear, suggesting labor shortage. Labor shortage, right? Case Huge. closed. Off yeah, the we're charts. talking about yeah, labor shortage. Literally, off, I mean, beyond anything you could possibly, uh, we never would have seen this before. Uh, and again, the amount of job openings, which is a JO part of the JOLT survey, was up as up to a, almost 11 million in the latest month, which is it's just the month of July. It's a month, one month further back from the main payroll reports. So in the month of July, the BLS says that there were 11 or nearly 11 million job openings, while the rates of hiring lag significantly. Which again, most people are interpreting this data as case closed, labor shortage. Businesses want workers, and they just can't seem to hire them because unemployment benefits, lazy, whatever, whatever excuses they want to come up for. And that's really, that's, it, it's, it, this is a problem that we've seen three times before that just, at least in the job openings data, that seems to repeat. But we're going, we're going to go through some graphs that you put together that kind of digs into just off the superficial number, which is what we're looking at right here on this, on this chart. And I'm glad, Jeff, that you followed the Fed's, uh, pattern by not naming it just red and pink you've got a vermilion and a salmon colored instead of just you know beige and white okay so now we move on to the ne next graph here tell us what this maya colored blue and cobalt blue what these this chart means this is the turnover part of it which is you know the labor force is a dynamic place some people get laid off every month some people quit voluntarily because they hate the job they, they want to go someplace else. And then on the other side of that is companies are hiring people, right? Mm -hmm. So we have sort of the net turnover, which is the rate of hiring minus the people who are leaving either voluntarily or involuntarily. And what you find is that when you make a statistical adjustment of 300,000 or so, 
that net turnover every month pretty much matches the establishment survey's monthly change. Fascinating. Perfect. So it looks like we can rely on this data. Is that right? And then... Right, we but move. this is the other the, the turnover data. This is not the job openings data. This is the other part of the Jolt survey. Exactly. You've brought this up before, is that job openings, there's something off, right? And that's where we're going to get to eventually. But let me show yeah, a couple seem to of be, these. Job, the job openings data seems to be in a world of its own. And there's a couple of different reasons that could be. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Okay, so here's another one. That's Now, this is the same thing, but we've zoomed in, right? And it looks like it's still on track, right? Yeah, we're pretty much everything. Um, again, and, it's one month further behind, so we don't have the jolts data for August, which you know that was the month of the big pay, the the big payroll report miss. And I would imagine that when the jolts data for August comes out at early next month, you'll see a, a marked decline in it as well. So again, we see hiring minus layoffs and discharges tracking another set of data. Perfect over here we can now correlate the establishment survey to initial jobless claims right it seems like totally it's all separate yeah totally separate reasonable. data this okay. is from the department of labor and what the jobless claims data has yes jobless claims have been improving but the rate of improvement has slowed since may and of course we keep coming back to may over and over again and what that suggested that even before we got to the august payroll report earlier this month last friday in fact um, we would have expected it to be a big miss because the jobless claims data was suggesting that there was weakness in the labor market. So we've got several sets of data, several different sources, collection methodologies. Okay, and they seem to correlate except for one of them, one of them. And as you explained, in your view, the BLSJO data is simply incapable of addressing its own increasingly obvious, increasingly increasing statistical problems. Jeff, this isn't the first time you brought this up. I don't know when, how long ago it was, a year or two, two years ago as well. You were questioning, I, yeah. why does this one... 2019, absolutely. Same, same, okay, same tell exact us. thing. Yeah. Except it's only gotten worse. You know, the, the reason we call it turned up to 11 is because now with 11 million job openings, we're supposed to believe there are 11 million job openings or there are 11 million jobs, potential jobs that remain unfilled. But is that actually the case? Maybe the BLS is double counting postings and not able to discern and, and uh, eliminate duplicates. Maybe that, you know, it just is, is during these periods of reflation or when things get better, companies are just, you know, advertising more than once or more than a couple times or more than they used to for a single job post. And that's really, I think, what's going on here is that it's gotten crazy to the point where. You know, maybe the BLS data collection uh, data collection procedures isn't able to keep up or keep track or keep accurate track of, you know, what's really a job opening and what's really maybe one job opening being advertised multiple times. And what the BLS will say is that no, we we, we count for this stuff. We try to keep track. We try to make sure that we eliminate any any double counting. But it doesn't mean they're having a, a good time or being able to do it. I think that's really what becomes evident in these these periods where it's not just 2021. There was also 2018 and to a and, lesser extent, 2014. And yes. you can see from the chart, it keeps getting worse every time. And of course, in 2014, there obviously was not a labor shortage. In 2018, while the labor shortage made all of the mainstream media, there wasn't a labor shortage then either. So we're left to conclude, at least in those two instances, 
job openings was like the unemployment rate a misleading statistic is it likely that it's also misleading in 2021 as well has become nuclear in how it's misleading in, in 2021 that certainly seems to be determination of not just the, the data that we pointed out here but a, a hell of a lot of other data as well as when you look at things like the bond market and bond yields and things like that which are saying we're not seeing that kind of robust demand for labor nor is the labor force again the labor force participation rate is a big problem which suggests maybe companies are advertising for jobs but they sure as hell are not willing to pay what the what the labor force wants in order to fill those jobs and even the higher statistics and the turnover data suggest the companies are not really moving as robustly as they should if the, if if this you know the job openings data was actually representative of the, the overriding condition in the labor market and the economy 2014 was the first year of the third euro dollar event the global dollar credit squeeze 2018 was the first year of the fourth euro dollar event and here we are again talking about a labor shortage similar sets 2021 might we be in the beginning stages we'll see that's why we're taking a look at multiple perspectives independent perspectives hopefully that's what we are going to do in part three of this episode we're going to go back in time and look at a moment when the third euro dollar squeeze began and see when if there's anything similar taking place right now all right jeff i'll see you there the euro dollars knows what does that mean that's the title of jeff snyder's alhambra investments blog post he's the head of global research at alhambra investments he posted it on the 8th of september might it be the camel's nose coming into the tent but now we're saying it's a euro dollar i'm not sure we're going to ask him jeff we're going to go back in time and not talk about whichever euro dollar event we're on now but we're going to go back to 2017 to talk about the fed wire version of euro dollar number three what was it it wasn't quite the same but it was also a break a date a set of dates fed wire for those of you who are joining us went offline on the 24th of february 2021 and on the 24th 25th and 26th we saw all sorts of inflection in markets around the world suggesting that the post corona the reopening boom recovery was ending pausing globally synchronized growth had a similar end pause moment in 2017 jeff when was it what happened yeah, I don't know what the euro dollar's nose is either. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, nose is prominent on my face, so maybe I'm just thinking about noses in general. But it, it really does seem to be, you know, okay, yeah, yeah, let's set the scene. September of 2017, globally synchronized growth. Inflation hysteria was just starting to percolate. Everybody was getting really confident and optimistic that, hey, even the Federal Reserve is going to tighten its balance sheet. QT is going to happen. That's how good they think things are being. And I think that was the general consensus that, hey, maybe for the first time, yeah, there've been a couple false dawns prior to this, but maybe this one is gonna stick. This is gonna be the one where we finally put the 2008 crisis behind us and re-enter the you know, legitimate economic boom that had been you know, taken for granted before then. And that was really September of 2017. It seemed like everything was going the right way. I mean, that's the globally synchronized growth. That's kind of the impression that you're left with is that, everything is going the right way in the right manner at the right time except 
in early 2017, well, even before then, there was, there was, there was anomalies that sort of eh, made you think that something wasn't right. But then those anomalies really registered. I think it was September 5th of 2017. You saw the T-bill rate skyrocket out of nowhere. Well, seemingly out of nowhere. And then, as you pointed out, Emil, just like Fedwire in February 2021, a lot of the charts started to move. There was inflection points all around early September 2017, where if you didn't buy into the whole globally synchronized growth uh, slogan, what you said was, wait a minute, what the hell is going on here? Because this is starting to look like not globally synchronized growth, but unsynchronized bad things appearing and appearing more frequently. The first one that we're looking at is what you just referenced, a spike in yields. And it was a one day spike. It was incredible. We could ignore it, except what did we see? We saw that very same day repo fails, meaning uh, invest banks were refusing to return collateral they were reporting that they didn't receive the collateral they expected to re to be uh, receiving that day and we saw a spike that day we saw a gold price inflect on the 8th of september we saw the hong kong dollar and chinese currencies inflect you don't list it here as well but we had copper prices inflect and cross currency basis swaps as well I don't remember about swap spreads. Maybe you can, if you remember off the top of your head. But we had all these disparate measures, totally unrelated, Hong Kong, China, copper, gold, repo fails, swap spreads, basis points, uh, cross-currency basis swaps. They yeah, all I mean, it was, It's just flipped. like Fedwire, right? Because yes. September 5th, 2017 was nothing. There was nothing really, ha I mean, yes, it was, actually it was, it was, uh, it was the fear over the debt ceiling that maybe that wasn't going to be uh, managed properly. And it was just a one day kind of a break, which was kind of what Fedwire was. This, you know, you know, markets experience disruptions and all sorts of un unforeseen circumstances all throughout time. Yeah, but why did that one turn out to be such a big deal? Because as you just pointed out, it showed up in all of these charts that said, wait a minute, something changed here. In the same way, February 2021, in the wake of Fedwire and then the missed, the, the quote unquote bad auction in the seven year tre treasury notes, something changed after that. And it was such a clear inflection point that didn't seem to, it didn't seem to, it didn't seem to be congruous to what had actually seemed to have caused it, which was this little nothing, this little tiny thing we should probably, should never have, uh, you know, certainly made that kind of impression. And that's really the similarities that I think we want to get into. And what we're really talking about here. February 2021, September 2017, the euro dollar's nose nosing into moving in the wrong direction is fragility. It's that, you know, part of globally synchronized growth and certainly part of the flood of digital money in the, in the post-COVID era of Jay Powell's, you know, QE6 forever kind of a, a, a paradigm, we're not supposed to see a fragile system. We're supposed to be, you're supposed to be seeing a resilient system, as Janet Yellen used to say during her tenure. You know, globally, everything's going well, and that includes a monetary and credit system that is now completely healed and fortified, impervious to bad things. You know, that's the impression that you were left with. And I am entirely sympathetic for the vast majority of the public who believe that that was the case. But yet here we see this little nothing, this little tiny spark that blew up the whole thing eventually because 
the system wasn't resilient. The system wasn't impervious. In fact, it was incredibly fragile. And there were, there were we talked about this before, you know, T-bill prices below IRP before September 27th. He already told you something was wrong. And then you had this little tiny spark that, that, that uh, turned it into so much, so much bigger than it was. And it actually turned out to be the turning point. From that point forward, that re third reflationary period started to get weaker and weaker and weaker so that by the time you got to 2018, it was full on Euro dollar number four. And it's in September 2017, I remember this, you, you quote yourself here, but I remember reading it at the time. You write, it started with repo and that part is confirmed. The real question is what all this means up to and including whether it marks like the fails in June 2014, and you put this in bold, the start of whatever the next phase of the euro dollar decay might be. Some of the measures that we always look to, however, still continue believing in, in reflation, including bonds from not just the United States, but Germany and Japan. And the dollar sort of still sort of signaled reflation. And that's what's going to segue us to present day, the dollar. But I'm going to pull up the dollar from 2018, 2017. And Jeff, just tell us what you're seeing here. And then we'll take a look at the dollar today. Well, that was the other part going back to 2017. Globally synchronized growth was bad for the dollar exchange value, which I mean, weak dollar correlates with good, good economic growth around the world, as you would expect, because what a weak dollar actually is, is the euro dollar system creating an abundance of monetary resources and then redistributing around the world so that good economic growth, legitimate economic, gro economic growth can actually take place. So it wasn't so much a weak dollar as it was reflationary trade throughout the monetary system. Some people posited that this was the beginning of a dollar crash and, so, and whatnot. And so um, there was all sorts of rhetoric around that time that, you know, hey, the dollar's gonna fall out and go, go to zero, <laughs> all that kind of stuff too. But you, what we're really, you know, at that time, globally synchronized growth and weak dollar, those things were correlated and they were actually taking place up until around September 5th of 2017. Now, what you had was a, about a one month spike in the US dollar, which was one of those, hey, did something happen here? Maybe it's not, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's not a full blown Euro dollar event, but it's something, something took place here. Again, as you pointed out, Emil, it was gold, it was repo fail. We saw it in all these market indications. And we also saw it in the dollar's exchange value, which seemingly out of nowhere just reversed. Again, fragile system. It wasn't a dollar crash. It wasn't a weak dollar. It was just simply a reflationary dollar, which is a completely different story. And then it rose for a couple of, I mean, sorry, lost value again, depreciating, because perhaps things were going to pass, whatever that little bump was, until about February 18th, when it paused, it hit its low, and then it kind of traded sideways until April. And that time difference then was it about, shot higher. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. And then nobody was expecting it to shoot higher. And that's I think that's what we're really talking about here is that, look, what happened in September 2017 was a precursor warning to what was going to happen throughout 2018. As I wrote in 2017, what I was saying was essentially maybe this is a warning sign that the system is so fragile that things are already starting to work against against that trend as it that's exactly what happened. By early 2018, it became so obvious 
that even the dollar's exchange value was making it impossible to ignore anymore, even though the mainstream media ignored it completely and started talking about the labor shortage in the U.S. almost exclusively. But what, what, that, what that meant was the fragile system, it doesn't just break all at once. It's not like it just snaps and it goes from one, working one day to not working the next day. These things are processes and they're multi-month and multi-year processes. And they build up and build up over time. And though the boundary between reflation and you know the next euro dollar event isn't a bright dividing line where it's one day to the next, it's a series of essentially escalating warnings or escalating situations or events or anomalies, whatever you want to call them, where we look at these things and say, something must have happened here. Something seems to be changing or something has changed such that you know what we thought beforehand, reflation or a, a system moving in the right direction, the economy moving in the right direction, suddenly that's not such a clear picture. And then on the other side of it, it becomes a, a it becomes a clear picture again, just in the other way. Except for people that are watching this show, they'll have been warned. They'll have seen it coming. Uh, the two words that you were using that year, I remember, were escalating and ratcheting the effect, tightening. Let's look. Let's uh, look at the U.S. dollar. Yeah, where that's, did, Emil, that's what the dollar was doing in late 2017, early 2018. You had that, you know, the reflationary downward trend. Then it just kind of broke for a month or five weeks, whatever it was. And then October 2017, it kind of went back into the sinking thing and everybody went, oh, that's fine. And then February 2018, for a couple of months, it went sideways. And that was the ratcheting effect as more and more things started to go wrong, more and more negative signals, more and more uh, accumulation of all of these anomalies becoming more frequent, becoming more serious. And then finally, in uh, April of 2018, the dollar just pops higher, seemingly out of nowhere, when in fact, there are any number of signs that would told that have told you, reflation number three was dying. Globally synchronized growth was nothing more than a bumper sticker. The, the US dollar, the global euro dollar system was not resilient. In fact, it was incredibly fragile, especially with collateral. And that that was becoming a problem as it had repeatedly throughout the last you know 15 years. If memory serves me right, Argentina was already in negotiations with the IMF before April, before their currency started going the wrong direction. That was just another one of those indications that something's wrong. You remember they had the president, Macron, who was this liberal internationalist technician. Everything was going to be great again, globally synchronized growth, but it went pear-shaped. Jeff? Anyway, yeah, it's, and if you were just paying attention to something like that, it seemed like it came out of nowhere. Right. Everything was great, and then wait a minute. What is? What are all these countries going bankrupt? You know, why is I, why is Argentina being given the largest bailout in history? Why is there an emerging market crisis, and why is the you know these currencies dropping all around the world? It seemed out of place and out of nowhere. When in fact it was not out of place, nor was it out of nowhere. Pear shaped. I just mentioned it. Is this graph that I'm pulling up now where you overlay the 2017-2018 experience of the U.S. dollar to the 2020-21 experience of the U.S. dollar. Would you describe as that as the shape of a pear, a banana? I don't know. It almost looks like uh, the, the constellation, the Big Dipper. You know, yes. <laughs> I don't know. Big Dipper shaped. What are we yeah, looking at on this? Shape. I don't know how we, but that's just because we don't see the right hand side of the, the, the chart where the dollar goes on much higher. Mm -hmm. Kind of cut it off there just to, to make the, 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 uh, the comparison more toward the left side than the right side. And that's really what we're talking about here is that, again, commonality, late 2020, 
sounded a hell of a lot like in the mainstream description late 2017. All the dollars going down, inflation, economic growth is picking up. We've got all these good things happening, you know, vaccines, stimulus, blah, blah, blah. Everything was good and everything is dollar negative. And then early January 2021, when everything was supposed to be going exactly the right way, just like September 2017, suddenly the dollar popped higher out of nowhere. What's going on here? And during that that pop higher in early 2021, that's when we saw Fedwire. That's when we saw the February 25th and 26th stuff and everything else start to happen in charts everywhere else. So it wasn't exactly the same timing as it had been in September 2017, but it was pretty darn close. And as you can see on the chart I'm showing you here, the dollar's exchange value seems to be eerily similar in what it's doing as well. And again, fragility becoming something more fragile before becoming a big problem. Couple of points. First one is that dollar you're showing there is not the DXY index, which we've talked about before, which was really just effectively the Euro, and which is but what traders you use, reference. You could use DXY, you could use the emerging market, uh, uh, trade weighted dollar. They're all, the, they all show the same pattern. I love the the broadly weighted one though. I always go to that one. If I really want to know how's the dollar doing, if I don't have time to look at every single cross, that's the one I like to use. So I just wanted to tell people that's the one we were looking at. Yeah, and cool. the other point is uh, you mentioned is that it's incredible how there's a five month difference again between the two bottoms that we see there. And you mentioned that it's not a coincidence, that it's fractal. I can't wrap my head around it, Jeff. Can you uh, help me understand how it, how this incredible miracle coincidence is not a miracle or coincidence, right. but it's, mathematical it's, it's, fractal? It's how, uh, you know, it's repeating patterns across time scales or any other types of scales, which you'd seem that, you know, markets are supposed to be random. They're never, things are never supposed to repeat, but yet we see things repeat time and again, even on some smaller scale patterns, which suggest fractal behavior, which is simply, there's an underlying deeper fundamentals at place where markets respond to the same types of inputs in a somewhat the same way, despite differences in periods of time or differences in you know ages or epochs or whatever else. It's just maybe there's an underlying humanity involved here in how we interpret data and how even complex and large systems react to changes in data and because that's just the way we do that. That's the way humans actually do that. And so it's not necessarily to me surprising to see a fractal pattern show up in something like something as utterly complex and huge as even the dollar's exchange value because it's essentially we're you know when you think about it as we're trying to do here boiling it down to you know small small number of variables and small you know small uh, small number of cases what we're really saying is this is the way this a fragile system responds to negative stimulus or negative inputs and maybe that's just the way that we do this the way the markets do this is for all the sophistication and computer technology and reach and everything else, it's just the way things are. That there is an underlying fundamental way that humanity responds to these types in these types of situations. That just that's why it repeats. Well, so that's that's kind of the point here. Be if you see the repeating pattern, at least if nothing else, it's hey, there's something going on here. Maybe we need to pay closer attention to it. And not just take everyone's word that things are going in the right direction and that, oh, maybe it's just Delta COVID or some other thing. Maybe there is other things going on that nobody else discusses because either they're afraid to discuss it or like the Federal Reserve, the last thing they're ever going to do is discuss why they screwed up all this time. 
there are many reasons for hoping that the Eurodollar malfunction ends and that we enter the new golden age. One of them for me is, Jeff, that, so that you can retire from this economic analysis stuff and go into your true love and mathematical philosophy and studying physics and writing about that. So I really like that explanation you gave there at the end. Jeff, that's it yeah, for me. Yeah, and I think, me. well, Emil, you know, that's our goal here is to the day where nobody cares what we have to say. <laughs> no. That's what we're really shooting for here. But Most how? people want to grow their audience. I look forward to the day when nobody has any, you know, that Jeff's, we don't need him anymore. Emil, we don't need, well, Emil's always going to be no, popular. No, it's People don't want to hear from you. <laughs> but it's, at some point, there will be a day where nobody will care about euro dollars or the monetary system because it will have finally been dealt with and fixed. And we won't have to worry about dollar shortages and the inevitable squeeze and the economic consequences. John Maynard Keynes, evil, will keep talking about that in the labor market and how it's, you know, the hidden suppression there. I look forward to the day when we don't have those problems. As you pointed out, I do have children, and I would like for my daughters to live in a world where they don't have to go through these these uh, periodic issues that just they're leading us in the wrong direction. And worse than that, they're, re they're leading the world in the wrong direction with very little answers for it. Nobody seems to be able to identify cause and effect because nobody's looking at these things. Everybody's thinking, Jay Powell said he flooded the world with digital bank reserves that must be money not only that in 2021 what is the what is the overriding monetary theme that there's too much money right the reverse repo everybody's talking about too many reserves too much money so it's not even we're not even looking in the right direction we're looking in the exact opposite way and taking everyone's word for it that there's too much money this year it's just yeah i look forward to the day when people start to ignore that and say what's really going on with these things when things continue to turn out the, the way they're not supposed to, and almost always in the opposite way. The dollar is supposed to be going lower and lower and lower, and here we are, you know, and it's September of 2021, and it's higher again. Why? Somebody please explain why. You know, and for all the people who are claiming that inflation's coming, why didn't it come the last time? Why didn't it come the time before that? You never explain why inflation failed to show up in 2017 and 2018, or 2014 and 2015, which you know, I think seems to be kind of important in 2021. If you think inflation is different this time, what makes it different? Because I tell you, when you look around the real monetary system, it is not different. In fact, it's so not different that we're seeing these fractal patterns in the dollar's exchange value. That's where we're really fragile monetary system. You're not going to see sustained inflation. Well, on this September 9th, the four-year anniversary of the end, the beginning of the end of globally synchronized growth. Jeff, that was a great show. I'm going to go have a drink to commemorate the four-year anniversary. And I will talk to you again next week on the 16th. Yes, let's raise our glass to the end of our own show. Let's, let's look forward Beautifully to it. Beautifully stated. Very well. <laughs> a bottle. Because I'll a be a little one, yeah. depressed. But yeah. The whole thing. Talk to you next week. Okay, take care, Emil.